Morning everybody and thanks for joining us. We're recording this on the 15th of July 2020. Thank you for your time. Um, this is a section of a series of podcasts we're doing, basically talking about preparing the community for COVID-19 and our experiences from that. In this particular podcast we're going to be talking about medication and in specifics accessing medication in terms of end-of-life liquid medications. I'm Dr Elise Lang, I am a GP in Cardiff and I'm also a Macmillan GP advisor for Wales and I've got two colleagues with me here. Um, Rachel would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah thanks Elise, so um, my name's Rachel Lee, I'm a GP in Cardiff and I'm also a Macmillan GP advisor for Wales. And my other colleague is Fiona. Hi, Fiona. Hi I'm Dr Fiona Rawlinson and um, I uh, I'm a consultative palliative medicine community in Cardiff and also run the Cardiff University uh, education programmes for palliative medicine. Thanks both and great to have you with us today. Um, we're just saying really before we launch this that it, it's July now and times have changed since there's a peak of Covid earlier in the year and I guess we're kind of in a phase where we're reflecting back on what's been before and also sort of nervously and anxiously looking forward to what might be coming towards the autumn and, and, and predicted modelling for, for further spikes with coronavirus. And so particularly looking back at, at how we all felt around the supply of end-of-life medication, there were lots of concerns early on about lack of availability of certain key drugs and the need to substitute and use different things and this caused a whole lot of panic uh, and you know, the need to supply these medications is essential both for patients who may be dying in the community from nothing to do with COVID and expected deaths, but also for what we were expecting, which was a large volume of predicted deaths from COVID in the community. And so a number of key changes were written into legislation from Welsh governments that we have all been involved in here that are sanctioned for changes around COVID and, and that may well now be out of date by the time you listen to this but at the time of recording some of these changes are still key and still relevant around Wales. So particularly we were worried about supply of end-of-life medications and how we access them and obviously ordinarily Rachel and I when we need them as primary care physicians we'll contact our local pharmacy and this has caused a lot of anxiety about who hosts what or whatever else. So Rachel, were there changes that the local pharmacist made that allowed it e to be easier for us to access them and to discuss medication? Yeah, thanks Lee. So these are changes specific to Cardiff and Vale and it is likely that similar initiatives happened in other health boards. But in Cardiff and Vale, we have dedicated pharmacies um, who have a known store of palliative care medication. So these are medications that um, if patients are unable to take medication orally they can have injections for symptomatic control if they're reaching end of life if they're very distressed um, or need need something to help their symptoms so the problem was at that point like Elise said that there was already a shortage of end-of-life medication and I think that might have been partly a knock-on effect because um, GPs were doing the, the right thing the thing that we had been encouraging people to do which was to anticipate that some patients may be reaching end of life and prescribing medications in anticipation of that however that that was leading to perhaps a a shortage in medication and also problems for patients and their families when they were trying to access this medication because they would end up going to several different pharmacies to try to get the medications that were prescribed 
And I'm sure we all remember, you know, at, in early March, there were queues going around the corner to get to pharmacies. And it was a very distressing thing having to wait in line with a prescription to then be found to find that perhaps the medication wasn't in stock. So we worked very closely with the palliative care pharmacies and um, gave them a dedicated mobile phone each. And that meant that a GP, if they prescribed medication or a, a palliative care consultant, could contact the pharmacies directly without a constant engaged line, which was happening because the pharmacies were overwhelmed. And this was purely for palliative care medication and they could have a conversation with the pharmacies find out A, if there were the medication was there, and B, perhaps arrange for a, a, a quick way for the relatives to come and collect the medication without having to stand in line. And that has worked beautifully. Um, and it also has, has been much better for the, the carers and the family trying to get the medication because rather than the distress of having to go around different pharmacies, it, it, was, it could be accessed very quickly. Thank you, Rachel. It, it, it's something I think at the time probably the pharmacists were slightly nervous about having this sort of you know, back phone to, to be contacted in an emergency by the primary care physicians and, and palliative care teams and being worried, I suppose, that they might be flooded with calls. I have to say I've never needed to use it yet. I know the phone list is there and I know how to find it, but I haven't as yet needed to use it. Um, the other thing change that we made um, across primary care was about the number of vials that we released at the time on a prescription and that um, instead of giving a much larger amount, we've been giving smaller amounts more often, making sure that patients don't run out of supply, but rather than where um, excessive amounts have gone out in the past and then they can't be reused, they have to be binned. So therefore trying to preserve the stock really, but making sure there was enough backup in reserve for when it was needed. Fiona, I realise your experience will be different because yours um, may be less to do with this actual supply, but have you got any comments on the sort of use of the community pharmacists through this? Yes, thank you. No, I, I, mean, I think it was a really steep learning curve through March. And I think what we hope, I think what we all hope is that the, the ability to plan and to change and to develop services in response to the local need was absolutely fantastic. Um, and I hope, we all hope, I think, in the future, if there are second and third peaks and waves through the autumn and winter months, that if necessary, we can, we can build on this experience. I, th I think just remembering, even in the midst of the crisis, remembering the, the fundamental thing for that person who's dying and their family at home and the need to try to have things as smooth for them as possible is, is, is really vital because I think that underpins all the decision making and all, all the need for these sorts of initiatives. You know, death at home is a, is a, a, a particular experience having deaths at home as we've discussed elsewhere during COVID is complicated for all sorts of reasons and trying to iron out any any avoidable kind of extra stresses is really important so for the families knowing that if symptoms are difficult there are things that can be done at home to sort them out even in the midst of a pandemic and in the midst of, of great uncertainty has I think been a great comfort um, I personally haven't had experience of needing to use dedicated phone lines, but I know that colleagues in, in my specialist palliative care colleagues in the community have and have found them really useful. So let's keep fingers crossed that we can, we can continue and just continue the thinking and continue the patient focused thinking. How can we keep things as, 
as simple and, and straightforward for patients and particularly for their families. Thank you. And, and, and bearing that in mind, I guess the smoothness and, and the, you know, the streamlining of operations and stuff, we were preparing as well through COVID for a large, larger than happened at the time, predicted number of community deaths. And that would have meant that more of my colleagues in the practice who perhaps aren't um, the people who might necessarily choose to do end of life care, they would focus in other areas of medicine first and foremost may have to deputize and, and you know people would have to take up roles that they were less comfortable with and it's really important with end-of-life medication that you prescribe the right things and in liquid forms they come in different strengths and all sorts of things and, and it can be quite worrying particularly for you know junior trainee GPs and people who don't normally do this and um, Rachel's going to talk a little bit about how we helped with that with regard to the sticker system for prescriptions yeah, so um, the first thing we also did actually is we recognised that um, we probably need to get some good guidance out. So we um, found there was some very good guidance on end of life um, treatments, medications, what to use for different symptoms. And we made sure that that was circulated to, to primary care. So they had a quick access to recognise guides and information. Um, but yes, the other thing that we, we've done is we've got stickers. So usually end-of-life medication, apart from painkillers, comes in standardised doses. And I think if you're not prescribing it regularly, it is sometimes, you know, it, it can cause a bit of anxiety and you need to look up to check the doses and make sure you've got it right. So what these stickers have done is they have standardised the, um, the medication, such as something for vomiting, cyclozine, hyacine for secretions, you know, and they can be stuck on the drug chart. The GP can check they're happy with them and then signed. And again, it, it reduces that risk of error and, um, make, you know, causes, gives more confidence, I think, for the prescriber. And that's something that all the district nursing teams have got. And they've also been circulated to each GP practice. So if you are in that situation where you do need to prescribe the drugs, which would have to be done if they were to be used, they need to be put on a community drug chart but these stickers can go into that community drug chart and easily signed and dated so they're ready to be used. Yeah, so that was a Cardiff and Vale initiative, wasn't it? And, and some and other health boards may be taking part in that, but I know certainly, as you say, in Cardiff, we've all got a, a roll of those stickers now. Um, a lot of the drugs that we use that Rachel just referred to, things for sickness, things for um, secretions, the doses don't change for the size or the age of the patient necessarily. For other drugs like morphine, um, it may well be that it's very variable. And so, you know, the, the doses would be changed on certain things where it was relevant. But for those things that are static, um, it just simplifies the process and makes it, as Fiona was alluding to, really that smoother, streamlined system for people to get their medications as quickly and as safely as possible. And I guess that leads me on to the next part, really, which is about end of life medication in nursing homes. And so we were both, Rachel and I, involved with some work with Welsh Government and, and the, the Health Board about the use of liquid medications for end of life. And there were some really important changes that were brought in through COVID that I'd like to try and describe a little bit more to you. Rachel, do you want to describe the, the things we're thinking of? Yeah, thanks, Elise. So <clears throat> these are all Wales initiatives. And um, again, Sort of guided by the Welsh Government and they came with um, very strict documentation and clinical governance around it and it's purely during Covid times 
So they still stand at the moment, um, but it's probably not something that will be used after the, the COVID pandemic is is over if that's going to happen. <clears throat> so the first thing was to try and to try to reduce wastage of end of life medication. So an example may be if someone needs midazolam, it may the vial is quite a large vial, and it may be that only a small amount was needed. So midazolam is used if somebody is quite agitated or distressed at end of life. <clears throat> and there was an initiative put in place, but if you had two residents in the nursing home who needed the same drug that vial could be shared whereas normally a small amount would be taken out and then it would be thrown away so that again with very clear guidance care governance is something that can be used in nursing homes and in hospices at the moment um, another thing that happened was repurposing of end of life medication so this is in a very specific situation um, and if for example a resident had adequate or a good supply of injectable end of life medication in place in case they were to become less well <clears throat> and deteriorate, but didn't need it at the time. And another resident suddenly became very unwell and did need the sym symptomatic relief urgently. And it wasn't possible to access that quickly enough for that resident. There were things put in place, again, with clinical governance, that you could use the medication for another resident if they did not need it at the time for the patient who was in distress. And that would give you adequate time to replace the supplies for that resident whose medication you use. And again, that was a, a very great, good initiative in the time with, um, you know, where you need to act quickly to avoid delays and avoid, you know, a patient being in unnecessary distress. While, for example, you're going around pharmacies trying to find that end of life medication for them. Thank you. Yeah, so it was a quite a clear sort of flow chart, wasn't it, that's been produced that was hopefully going to be held in all the um, homes so that if anyone, you know, arrived there to try and repurpose, if you like, reuse the end of life medications, a number of options had to be um, included before you're allowed to use someone else's. Um, and that included that there wasn't anyone that could supply it rapidly to you. Um, Fiona, did you want to come in on that at all? I think just to just to really to uh, again affirm what we were saying before that um you know in 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 the midst of unprecedented times the 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 quality of people's of people's deaths is the thing that families will remember and even though visiting was greatly reduced in in nursing homes certainly at the beginning of the pandemic visiting stopped didn't have to stop just because of reducing footfall the, the how people's deaths were described, how the staff were, relatives will, will have picked that up. And, and so all of these initiatives to try to make things as simple as possible, but as you were saying, with the clear governance, with the clear guidance, with the clear, clearly stipulated conditions, I think has been, has been really important. Um, hopefully moving out of COVID times, I think things may become more straightforward. But again, being able to develop services with the appropriate governance behind them that could rise to the challenge, I think is a, is a really useful skill. So we're kind of rather hoping now that in, in, a, in a sense, in, in the moment as we're just pausing and reflecting and possibly gathering pace for what happens next, just remembering why we've done things and remembering the steps that we went through to develop these initiatives, I think is going to be really important. Yeah, absolutely. 
and uh, you know it, it is trying to support both the patient in, in that environment isn't it like you say who's removed from their relatives but also the relatives on the outside uh, and I appreciate that the relatives you know may be concerned about medication for their relative being used for someone else but you know no one was ever left without and, and stuff was always restocked before before such times needed it was just literally a stopgap maybe in the middle of the night or whatever else to try and get through to the point where, where more medication could be supplied um there were be unfortunately times in the community where you know possibly in nursing homes but more so I feel probably outside of nursing homes that end of life medications were needed for people in extremists in distress um, and at that point those you know nearest and dearest to them may have called an ambulance to come in and support them and so some new legislation was written about um, paramedics being able to deliver one-off doses of medication to help people it, you know with extreme symptoms. Rachel I know you're involved with that do you want to say a little bit about what we now refer to as, as the GEMP pack and, and talk through that? Yeah thanks Elise so going back to the ambulances so each ambulance with a paramedic crew has got a store of end-of-life medication with clear guidance and if they feel the patient needs it they contact a clinician so it might be a GP or an clinician in the ambulance service and again it's another way of just very quickly recognizing that someone needs urgent symptomatic control and being able to access it and um, the other the other situation though was that it may be particularly in covid times a relative was isolating and was unable to go to get go to pharmacy to get medication or the medication that was needed for end of life was currently not available so another scheme that has been put in place called the GEMP scheme which is the um, just-in-case emergency medication pack. And this is a, a fantastic courier-based all-rails service. And again, if you need medication urgently, and for, for some reason it might be there's no one to collect it, it might be it's not available, or you can't get it within two hours, you can use the GEMP scheme. And this is um, done very neatly. There is an app that you can use to summon a courier, and then the courier will collect the prescription if needed from the person writing it and deliver the medication to the patient's house. Obviously they will try not to, to get any delays so maybe they go to the, med the person's house first to deliver the medication and then find the clinician for the actual prescription. A um, photo of the prescription is sent on the um, app, the secure app, so they can see exactly what's needed. Now these are set boxes of medication, you can't change them. And it may be, for example, you only need one of the items in there, but if you need that item urgently, it is very acceptable to use the GEMP scheme for this. This is both for in hours and out of hours. Now, it may be at the current time, this is no longer needed and it may be that it's stepped down, um, but certainly in March and April and May, it was, it was very reassuring to know that we had that additional way of getting medication if we needed it. I bet that provided huge comfort as well, Fiona, to, to your colleagues in, in hospice settings as well, knowing that that emergency supply was available around Wales, that we you know, within a two hour window. Definitely. And I know colleagues have, have were able to make use of the scheme on occasion and, and it did. And, and again, it kind of begs the question, if it's so good, then why can't we keep it all the time? But again, it's about it's about resources for courses, isn't it? It's about resources for the health situation we find ourselves in. However, it will have 
made such a big difference. And if you make a big difference to the quality of death at home, you make a big difference to the quality of bereavement, to the morbidity of the families left behind, etc., etc. So trying to find a way to keep some of the good bits of, of, of all of this, I think moving ahead is really important. Um, but again, thinking if we are going to head through a second or a third peak and wave, the, the ability to reform these initiatives as they possibly are stepped down in light of the current health situation, but to be able to reform them if we need to, I think is a really important thing to, to, to think about looking ahead. I think we'd all be uh, you know, grateful for the opportunity to have some sort of, well, I think we would be anyway, have some sort of future scope and look and see what would be needed and, and you know, steal ourselves for what might be to come but all we can do at the meantime is, is prepare and reflect on what we've done already and what changes really need to stay and, and what can be parked for now and then return to at times that we need them that's been a fascinating conversation um i think we've covered a lot of um nitty-gritty in terms of some of the the end of life medication supply issues but i think it, it's been useful to try and explain how some of that came about as well i mean we will have further conversations about other other things we've done through covid19 but i think for now we'll we'll pause this podcast and return to you another time with other topics so i'd like to say thank you both to rachel and to fiona and we'll see you again soon thank you thank you thank you